0: Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to another episode of The Canadian Story. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to two goonheads like David and I talk to people smarter than us. Um, Today, speaking of people smarter than us, we are joined by Dr. Jessica Rose. Dr. Rose, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm I'm not sure that I'm smarter than anyone. I I just work hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, that's uh that's what great. all the smart people say. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so Dr.
1: Rose, um, why don't you just, uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do.
2: Um, sure. Um, I am a researcher, I guess that's the broadest title I can give myself. Uh, I'm a professional longboarder too. That's important to know. Um, And I started my academic career in Newfoundland, Canada, uh, where I did my applied math degree and my master's in immunology, uh, all very medically oriented. And then I pursued a PhD in computational biology, which was pretty much more about analyzing big data. Um, Lots of in silico stuff, not so much uh, the lab work. And then I completed two postdocs, one in molecular biology and one in biochemistry, which were both really bench oriented. Uh, lots of, you know, pipetting and, and experiments, um, super interesting stuff, N- nothing was related to the other. So uh gave me kind of a uniquely strange, hey kitty, hi kitty. There's a kitty in the background.
0: Got a kitty Zach in the background. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I have three of those. <laughs> I'm,
2: like, I'm like Homer with the with the the, the thing the with squirrel. the poofy tail. Yeah, <laughs>
1: the squirrel, the squirrel
2: has a poofy tail. <laughs>
0: See
2: how smart I am? Anyway, um, so yeah, I I, ca- I have this strange, unique background, um, and so when the COVID stuff kind of started lurking lurking around i, you know, i heard the words zoonotic pathogen and this is my meat. I, I studied hiv during my um during my uh master's degree, so i i I tend to enjoy studying the, the the dangerous viruses the most. I don't know why. But um so my my interest was peaked and i was worried for about 2 weeks, you know, in the beginning of all of this and then when i started to see um the way that humans were behaving um, and the the weird authoritative um control measures being put into place which literally have nothing to do with controlling pathogens i i still can't believe that worked um i i started realizing yeah this is, there were some people up to no good here um this was this was definitely not what it was being portrayed as so I knew that there was this one track minded idea on the horizon that the way out quote unquote um was going to be this uh this massive injection campaign uh and and you know you, you guys know the story I mean eventually it was um It was like close to illegal to even suggest using off-label drugs to treat COVID. It was just, you have to get injected and that's it. So I also know a little bit about vaccinology. So I knew that these things hadn't been tested for the proper duration of time. Usually it takes between five and 15 years for a biological product to get from concept to arm. And there's a really good reason for that. Because you don't want to be injecting lots and lots of people with a product that hasn't really been definitively proven to be safe. And, uh, you know, they took about six months, a year total. And that wouldn't have even been good enough for, you know, if this was a conventional product vaccine, which it's not. And we'll get into that, too. Um so long story short, I anticipated that there were going to be uh, a lot of adverse events being reported to the various pharmacovigilance databases around and I didn't know anything about it before I started looking. But when I did start looking, uh the you know day 1 of the rollout December 14th or whatever it was, uh the the adverse events started being reported and it hasn't stopped and we're well over 1.4 million reports uh, in the domestic database in the u.s the VAERS system alone that's just the u.s and that's Whoa. not including any other reporting factor oh yeah it's it's and 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 just for some context in case people are hearing this for the first time this is um completely entirely like Green monster hiding in your closet a typical um unless you have a green monster hiding in your closet um for you know the total number of adverse event reports for all vaccines combined for an entire year vars has been on the go the vaccine adverse event reporting system has been on the go for about thirty years and the average number of like total reports over the thirty year time frame for all vaccines combined is somewhere near 39,000. So you compare that with what we have with just three products in 2021 and four up to 2022, because we have a whole year more of data now from 2022, 1.4 odd million. I mean, it's it's insane. There's nothing close to a comparison here. And considering the fact that um, the owners of this data are the same people making a lot of the the health policy decisions and they are not doing anything you know with this these signals because this is a pharmacovigilance database and its function is to show, reveal safety signals and data for analysis for the owners of the data so that they can in turn say, hey, I think there might be a problem with these products. They seem to be causing more myocarditis in kids. Maybe we should do something about that. Um, So, you know, that was a long answer, but uh, that's what I'm doing now. I'm basically an advocate for the injured people through making the data available to the average person with pretty pictures that's what i'm doing
1: let me uh let me try to make a counter argument here just for the sake of of interesting conversation um from the layman's perspective the layman being me um the uptake of the covid-19 vaccine would have been much higher i anticipate than a typical vaccine schedule so could it be that the um, additional reports that we are seeing in VARES are are simply a result of just a higher level of vaccination, um, like vaccination numbers, and that the percentages are playing out in a similar fashion?
2: It's an excellent question, but the answer is no. Um, I've done the math on this. Uh, I actually wrote this up in an article. Um, and what I did was I, I compared the the adverse event uh rate with just the flu products i didn't even take all of the vaccines combined and and i thought well okay there there must be a comparable number of flu shots given within a a year time frame as as the covid shots or you know maybe there are twice as many covid shots given as per the the flu vaccine so Turns out, if I'm remembering correctly, that it was a little bit over twice as many. Uh, I can find my article and quote if you really c- want me to. But.
1: clarify that for me. Twice as many COVID shots or twice as many flu shots?
2: Oh, twice as many COVID shots.
1: Compared so to flu
2: shots. So the thing, thing about that is, if you have twice as many, let's just use that as an example. If you have twice as many COVID shots having been administered, then if if it wasn't a more dangerous product, or if it wasn't manifesting adverse events that were out of the ordinary or in a broader range or category, you would anticipate that the the, the number of adverse event reports wouldn't be much more than twice as many. And you would also anticipate that the range of reported adverse events wouldn't be m- much more than what it always was. That would be an indicator of a relative amount of danger associated with the product. And so what I found was nothing close, like two to one ratio was compared to something like 117 to one in terms of the the number of adverse events. I'm just, I'm throwing out numbers here because from memory, but this is what it was like. There was no comparison. So just, just with napkin math, you can see that there's there's absolutely something different about these products. It's not about the number of shots. Um, the you know people have also argued that because there's more awareness of the uh, the var system now because of all this COVID stuff, that there's actually over reporting. Of adverse events. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> One of the main problems with um VAERS, because it's a passive reporting system, which means you don't have to uh file a report. It's it's like optional, it's like a volunteer thing, um, is under reporting. And this is this has been studied, it's been defined in the past. I've actually calculated an underreporting factor based on the Pfizer phase three clinical trial, severe adverse event data. Um, anyway, so it's there's no doubt, and no one would argue now who's actually looked at this data and studied this that VARES is highly underreported. So um anyway, uh it's it's not that. Um it's a good argument, but no. Phew, you know, I I've kind of shot that down uh, a while ago. Um, and just just to be clear, the range, okay, the way that you file a report in theirs is uh, by metric code. There, these are these. Um, there's different types of them, but the preferred terms are kind of like the diagnosis. Like if you go to your. Um, to your GP or to no, let's 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 take it to more to reality. If you start suffering chest pain uh within, I don't know, a day of getting your second shot, and you're like, oh shit, you know, I I I, I need to do something about this. This doesn't feel good, it's not normal for me. You go to the, the ICU and they run some tests and you get a diagnosis of myocarditis. And that GP or that doctor that attends to you or the nurse files a errors report for you, or you do it yourself, you're going to have, um, you can have up to 15 different uh, symptoms, let's call them listed there. Usually one person gets five. And the first one, uh, this measure code will be myocarditis. That's the name, the diagnosis. Then you'll have chest pain. This is another measure code. Anyway, there are, there are over 25,000 of these so you can pick out of just over 25,000 of these and file your report. Historically, when I did this analysis with the flu products, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from my memory here, which is not so good. I believe it was something close to 5,000 different types of metric codes that had been filed in the context of the flu, You know, ranging from chills to fever to blah, blah, blah. But for COVID-19, products. And when I studied this, I was just looking at three, the Pfizer, the Moderna and the Janssen, over 14,000 of a total over just over 25,000 were being utilized. So it's not just the absolute number of adverse events being reported. It's the types. It's the range, which is very significant because we're seeing a lot of rare stuff popping up. Uh, a lot of concerning stuff. And this is yet another indicator that there's something different about these products. And this is a perfect segue into the the fact that they are different. It's a completely new technology, two technologies actually that are brand new, never been deployed to, you know, five point something billion people in the context of, defeating a viral pathogen before. So we have this lipid nanoparticle technology, which is the the fat bubble that protects and houses the modified mRNA technology, never, ever, ever been used before. And so it's not surprising to most people based on the fact that these are new techs, that the historical um, trials were very short, and that the clinical trials for these specific products were very short. It's not surprising that we're seeing injuries in, in specific contexts. I mean, I don't know if you guys are up on this, but the, um, the number of neurologically related reports, whew, mm. it's crazy what's happening to the brains. And it's not surprising, like I just said, because lipid, the lipid nanoparticles can go everywhere. They can cross these special barriers, like the blood-brain barrier that larger things can't do. So the question becomes, when these lipid nanoparticles biodistribute, which has also been shown to happen, and bioaccumulate.
1: What is biodistribution?
2: means you've heard for sure that when you get um, an intramuscular vaccine or an injection, that it stays at the, the site of injection, right? It stays in the muscle if it's injected into the muscle. and, and you know, maybe there's going to be some migration of these particles to the local draining lymph node, which you know, one of these immunological uh, cell sacs in your armpit. We were told from the beginning that there's, there's no way that there's going to be trafficking of these lipid nanoparticles away from this site. So there's not going to be any problems associated with other organs or with the circulation or anything like that. So what we found through a uh, Freedom of Information request, thanks to Byron Bridal, another brilliant Canadian, um, was that not only where they were these lipid nanoparticles carrying this modified mRNA distributing all over the body? Like basically, they hitch a ride. They can hitch a ride in the blood, say, and they they just basically get passed everywhere in the body. And because they're coated with polyethylene glycol, which makes them really slippery, they can literally slip and slide anywhere in the body. So they can they can traffic really quickly and easily to. Wherever they want, and in some cases, this FOIA request showed that they not only go certain places they're not we were told they don't go, but that they accumulate there, and one of the places was the ovaries in women, which is really scary because what the hell are they doing there, and what's what's going to be the implications physiologically when they dump their payload. And the cells start producing massive amounts of spike protein. Mm. So it's biodistribution, bioaccumulation. And then the modus operandi of the product is to dump this payload and for the host cells to use their own machinery to transform this template, this, this mRNA template into spike proteins and then, you know, induce this immune response, but <laughs> this spike protein is really, really dangerous. From from many peer-reviewed articles, we're starting to see that this spike protein is doing a lot of damage in terms of um, inflammatory responses of the person against themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's like, you know, you see an accident and, and, and you, you're, you know, flames are going everywhere and you, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's okay. And you walk away. That's how this feels to me. It's like, there's a huge accident and a burning building here. And <laughs> nobody's looking at it, let alone trying to rescue people. I, like, you know, okay. this, this, um this is like, the, the The worst things that we've done uh added together with ice cream on top in my opinion like um and it's definitely not the way that we do things in science um we in science there's always uh a debate there's always room for questions there's always um opposing voices I mean that's that's what makes for brilliant discovery we we need uh we need dissident voices, if you want to call them that. Uh, we need we need discourse. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of what's been going on for two years um, is uh, is censorship of of a lot of uh, everything, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. You're probably well aware of that. Yeah.
1: Oh, we know about that. We know about that. Um, I have a question. Um Again, I'm speaking from the perspective of a layman, which I actually think is is helpful because most people aren't doctors. Um, I have come across because of the circles that I pay attention to, plenty of um, scientific articles, plenty of peer-reviewed scientific articles that I can somewhat understand because my sister has a background in research and she helps me out if there's things that I don't know how to interpret, and those sorts of things um but i hear also about um papers that come out that um definitely prove let's say the safety of some of these products as someone who is far more um experienced in in understanding these papers and reading the science what do you say about those particular publications
2: um they are resting on faulty laurels i don't know how to say it politely it's bad data
1: you don't have to say it
2: politely. Uh, <laughs> yeah okay so it's bad data um or it's misinterpreted data and it seems like the um the rule of late is that unless you and i'm not kidding here everyone in in this World knows that what I'm saying is true. Unless in your in the conclusion of your abstract you say something uh affirmative about the injection rollout or about one of these products, you won't get published if you're talking about the subject matter. Um, it sounds ridiculous, but I swear it's a theme. Um, so I mean. It's 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 almost impossible to say unless we did a step by step analysis of a paper and broke it down and I showed you like where, you know, they claim that this is true, when in fact it's not because you have to actually dig pretty hard and yeah. you have to you know go into their references, check their references, check their data. you need to be um, you need to have access to the original data sets, which in in most cases here is really hard, which is why this network of people is so important that we have who can, you know we, we're, we're all sharing FOIA requests, for example, like let's let's FOIA request that data and get serious answers about what these people are saying. Because we don't believe it. It can't be true according to this other data. And so right. um, we we, you know, this is the process now. It's it's very hard. Um, you you have to be pretty diligent um to to step by step show why a lot of these papers are just bogus wrong. Um, you know, and then there's the example of the Lancet that came out with this uh um. Uh, hydroxychloroquine study where they fudged the data and it was just literally fraudulent. And uh, so, you know, I, I wasn't involved in uh, improving that, but there were a bunch of dedicated people that did. So there are different levels um, and you're, you make such a an amazing point because most people would never know the difference between what this paper in The Lancet is saying and what this paper in The Lancet is saying. And so, I mean, basically for me, it's just been heartbreaking to, to see this unfold because the Lancet was always one of my, I mean, it's, it's one, it was always one of the best journals. It's like Mm -hmm. the, you know, the journal that all the medical doctors read and publish in, and it's really high ranking and, and it's just to, to learn. It's like fallen heroes. Um, So you know once you start seeing that certain journals are publishing bogus data over and over and over again and basically just crossing lines in terms of conflict of interests this is another thing like here's a tip robert malone wrote a piece on how to how he goes through the peer review process when he reviews an article it's really excellent, and I, I re-substacked uh, it. He gives a list of things that he calls red flags that, that lead him to either recommend for um, uh, publishing or or continued review or new, you know, take it off the pile. And, and one of them was this conflict of interest issue. If <laughs> if you see in the, you know, this, everybody has to declare whether or not they have one. And if you see that there's a huge conflict of interest, for example, the people who wrote the paper who are claiming that these things are safe and effective for pregnant women have stocks in the in the frickin, you know, pharmaceutical company, I mean, come on, can you really trust what they're saying, they can't be objective. That's why we have conflict of interest statements. That's why they're supposed to be used to say, hey, you have a conflict of interest. I don't think you should be an author on this paper, for example. So anyway, what I was saying was there There are a few journals now that I just don't, I have no faith in anymore because they've just repeatedly done this. Um, you know the the new, new England Journal of Medicine used to be one of my favorites, but it's like it's almost like a satire to me now. And I know that that sounds crazy. I know it does, but I'm just you know I'm 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 lending the the benefit of my experience. They're publishing yeah. uh, a lot of of um, of questionable things, and it's it's incentivized and it's motivated. Uh, in in term with regard to these conflicts of interest, in many cases, so it's yeah. part of what
1: is so unbelievably disorienting about this whole experience of the past. You know, we're coming up on three years now. Um, so you're talking yeah. about <clears throat> what you're talking about, essentially. If I can kind of summarize for you, is institutional capture, right? And for you, the the disorienting factor is these are journals that I thought published real um, science that had gone through the process, that vetted it to be valid. And for someone like me, it's, I thought the news reported things that were true. Or I thought that the government, generally speaking, worked to have the best intentions of the citizens. And you see it pretty much (laughs) everywhere. And it's incredibly, incredibly disorienting. And it creates this kind of like haze around you where you just like don't even necessarily know what's going on. Um, So can you speak to where this capture in medicine might be coming from? Why is it that reputable, prestigious, and uh, journals in high regard are now publishing, we'll call it... um, Opinion pieces, maybe.
2: (laughs) So it's the medical machine, um, which is all coming back to the pharmaceutical machine. So um, I'm never the best person to to describe what's going on, although I I should be by now because I feel I really understand it. Um, The... There's no, first of all, there's no need to even like bring nefariousness into this equation. There is nefariousness, of course, and there's a supremely lack of empathy. But this is about uh, big pharma, which is not not people for reals. It's they are corporate entities. Yes, you know, they have uh, human CEOs, but there's like there's so many different levels of of, um, organization and the hierarchies of these things. It's like, it's almost like, I feel like nobody has to take responsibility because nobody has that much power. And so these, these companies or these corporate entities, their, their business model is to profit and medicine is really profitable. I mean, the whole vaccine, uh, um, schedule in the United States, this is an enormously profitable industry. If you get a vaccine on, on the childhood schedule in the States, you, you make like billions in a year. And it's not hard to do, apparently. So it's it's a profit machine. And more and more, like, you know, um, corporate entities are are learning about these things. And it's, it's all about money and integration and if you think about the legacy media i mean a lot of them are funded a lot of them are sponsored by pfizer i mean we joke about it but it's true and therefore you literally and and this is the exact same thing with the peer reviewed uh process the journals they're they're funded their studies their grants all of this stuff comes from the money generated from this business model functioning so you can't say anything negative it's actually like in your contract you are not allowed to say anything negative about our product type thing not only that but i've actually seen it written that you have to write up their product and whenever you you write about it in a benevolent way you have to promote its beneficence and it's, it's, it's like, that's, that's how, that's how we got to where we are. And it's really sad because the humans are slowly being taken out of the equation slowly, like, um, slowly, slowly and slowly. But I mean, it's, um, that's, that's what's happened. I mean, it's, it's about, uh, it's about, Ugh, I it's it's so sad to think about, but people are just being bought and I don't think they they even know that they're being bought because they think about it like they just don't want to lose their job. They need to feed their family and and that's that's absolutely valid. But then it seems like we have to come to a point in our in every single one of our lives when we're like, okay, well, do I live um, do I live according to my ethics? Do I do the right thing or do I feed my family? How horrifying is that? How can this be our society? This is our reality right now, I think. This this is why the COVID thing was so horrific because it it, it came down to like, you you can feed your family or you can take part in our experimental gene therapy thing. It's like, what the the hell? Um, So yeah, that was a long rambling answer, but... The capture—it's—it's it's revealed itself of late. It's always been there. Um, one of the questions I always used to get when I would go for job interviews, you know, uh, I, I've never really had a job besides the service industry for for research project uh, interviews was, "How come you have so few publications?" You know, because that's a big thing in in academia. And and my answers would always be honest. It's you know, well, I. I I have few publications because the few publications that I have are really amazing and and I you know I, I I really believe that it's like I'm not one of these people that pushes out a million publications and puts my name on anything da, da 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 um I'm not in the machine part of the publication process and this is this is kind of like the dream and and if you get published in Science or Nature for example that, that door swings wide open and you can basically just, you know, you can have a hundred publications in no time by then. Um, but, uh, I hate the peer review process. Um, I always did. It, it felt icky to me. Um, it's, nobody likes it. I don't like being a reviewer either, even though I, I really enjoy editing and proofreading. It's, um, the incentivization is is very low. Um you and there's a lot of social politics in, in, in every world there 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 is a lot of social politics, and that's annoying and it takes away from professionalism, but it's very much alive and well in the peer review world. Um I've run into this, I've seen it firsthand. Like, how come it's taking a year and a half? for my measly little article to, to get published, why has it gone through five reviewers and two editors? Like, what's what's going on here? And apparently there was some kind of feud between my PI and someone else who was on the review board. So it's like, there's all this stuff going on in the world of, you know, academia and science. And, you know, everyone's fighting for, for pennies with, with grants and that's related to the publishing and it's all going back to who's funding you. And that's these, these people with all the money and they they have all the money because their, their products are, uh, are very profitable. Uh, and that's all tied to advertising. And a lot of that is lies. <laughs> there yeah. you go. There's my
1: answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's all very messy. Um, was the peer review process, always like that or has, yeah. um, has the politics ramped up?
2: Oh, it's ramped up. Are you kidding? Um, there's, uh, you know, there, there's this thing called retraction watch, uh, and it, it, uh, it writes up articles that get retracted. Uh, it's, I don't, I can't remember how long this person's been doing this or these people have been doing this, but, um, they've been doing it for a while. And so you can actually go to Retraction Watch and, and see the rate of retraction over the past, I don't know, however many years and compare it to what has been going on lately. And it's gone way up. Um, I mean, from ivermectin papers to hydroxy- hydroxychloroquine studies to papers written on myocarditis. <laughs> um, we have We have so many people in in the in the realm of the um, the good scientists I'll call them now and researchers now who can't get their work published. It's not even that it gets published and then it gets retracted. I mean that's what happened to me. But it, it can't. We can't get it published. We can't get it past preprint. Uh, maybe it's the title. Maybe it's the conclusion. Maybe it's the subject matter. I mean, you you really I I would I'm seeing more. Publications and case studies coming out now that implicate the injections uh, as the causative agent of harm. Uh, I'm seeing more, but it's like two years later, man. And you've injected five point something billion people. Like why? Why? I, I know that the data is only starting to come in now. I realize that, and it does take time to generate results from a lab. But this is another thing about. Um, the peer review process I, I I can't stand. It takes so long, and and because of the way that it is, you can have a paper in the review process basically put into limbo ad infinitum. This is mm. another thing that we're facing. You know, you can you can have it accepted for review. That's the first step, and yeah, you're all excited because within a few months you'll you'll if you you know do the corrections that they ask you to do, you'll have it published. But if someone decides you know if someone's manipulating the storyline and dictating what gets through and what doesn't which is what's happening your your papers never going to get out of that limbo so it's not happening to everyone um I, I i am glad to see that some papers are making it through but um it's it's I mean, I don't want to say it's too little too late because it's never too late but it's uh, it's a tr- pardon me it's atrocious that this happened at all I mean I don't know like take over the financial world and cause housing market crashes and all that stuff I'm probably making no sense here but you know <laughs> get out of our science get out of our science you bureaucratic get out of the patient-doctor relationship. Like, get out, get lost. You know what I mean? That's how I feel. I, I don't understand how it's gotten to the point, and, and Canada is a beautiful example of this, where these silly bureaucrats with no training in, in any kind of medical field are making decisions that are devastating the lives of people are the patients of medical doctors, for example, they're literally putting themselves in between doctors and patients, and they have no bloody business there. It's it's nobody's business. What happened to patient-doctor confidentiality, for example? I'm going on a tangent here, but it seems appropriate. I mean, we got into this phase that we're not past. by the way. We're really not where the the bureaucrats and the governing bodies convinced everybody that it was appropriate to tell anybody, anybody your medical status in terms of what you're vaccinated against. I mean, that's nobody's business. It's Mm. nobody's business what you're vaccinated against. It's private. I've
1: I've told this story a few few times on the podcast, but I think it's worth repeating. I know a, a mother who was making the same point. She's like, how is it that people are having to show vaccination cards to 17-year-old hostesses at restaurants to get seated when if I want my bloody kids' vaccine records, I can't even get them emailed to me. I have to call my doctor and say I want them, and then I have to go in in person with identification and pick up a print. I can't even get them emailed. Right. And yet we are just running around showing our medical status to everyone. It's just the the amount of of gaslighting um, is just obscene. It is just absolutely obscene.
2: You you nailed it, buddy. Did you see the video of the Saskatchewan woman who uh has been through this horrific uh injury from one of these products? Her son, too. Uh, they both have. I mean, I, I'm not even sure they're still alive. But um, she's. She. You, I'll send you the video. She went through, and she is going through. She continues to go through things that most people. I, I wouldn't wish it on. Well, maybe I would wish it on my worst enemy. No, <laughs> uh, I would, uh, you, horrific things. Yeah, I always throw a joke in there. But um, she demanded from all of the people along the line, all the medical professionals and the people making decisions for her um, as to her treatment, et cetera, to file a report, an injury report, AFI. Nobody would do it. Nobody would do it. And she I, she, she was talking about going through the process of getting um, things done. And she, she basically had to threaten to sue the people involved to get her medical data because she wanted her medical data back so that she could file a report. It, it's it's just like, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, the, right there, that's enough for me. That's enough. There's, there's something going on here that's not right. All this stuff, all this money that's being spent on these regimes and programs that's our money people that's our money that's our data people that they're harvesting and that's what this is about that's what the dream was all about it's harvesting data to eventually you know social credit score us that's ours you don't have to give that up you do not You also don't have to participate in any emergency use authorization product. You do not. And if you suspect, if you even suspect that there's something a little bit weird about the next injection that's going to come around to to save you from RSV or HIV or whatever is uh, in the pipeline, you can just say no. You don't have to participate. You don't have to bend your knees and be coerced by by these, you know, shadow people. Seriously, I mean, I, I've said this on just about every uh, interview I've done lately. It's you 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 don't owe anything to anyone in this regard. It's it's fantastically amazing to me how how good I I. I I shouldn't use that word but I think it's appropriate people have been it's it's this predation on the goodwill of the human is so disgusting to me I I I cannot even believe that everybody can't see that their their desire to do good was twisted against them and used against them it's uh, it's really blatant um and yeah it's disgusting so, yeah, I don't know. If I was going to give advice on that, I would say if something doesn't feel right, uh, it's probably not.
0: <laughs> yeah. why, why do you think, um, from your perspective, the scientific community particularly was so easily convinced? Like, I, I'm maybe I'm wrong. You would know this better. But I think a lot of these people believe what they're saying, from what I can tell. Like, they believe it's safe right? They, they think we're crazy. How did they, despite the evidence that you've described, shift themselves to that focus? Is it, do you think, an emotional, I want to keep my job, so I'll just believe this because it's safe? Or what do you think is going on here intellectually for these people who really seem to... Because I'm that's my biggest concern is that I'm crazy, right? I, that I'm the one that's not seeing the data properly, that I'm the one that's not... Uh, properly understanding what's going on. So what would you say to someone who says to you, well, no, actually, blah, 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 like all science agree, all these credible scientists agree, but like, why, why are they so convinced?
2: Um, There's a lot of different answers to that question. Some of them actually do believe it. I'd say a lot of them. Uh, some of them are afraid some of them have been threatened. Um, yeah, you know, they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to lose their medical license. They don't want to be ostracized by their 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 family within their work unit. Um, it's, it's crazy what's happened to a lot of people that I know. But um, you know what I say? I say get those scientists that all agree that these products are safe and effective. Get them in a room. And one to one, get a bunch of you know us in a room and let's let's have a discussion. Let's hash it out. Let's compare data, man. Let's do it. Like I I am a hundred percent in that room. I have no fear. I will bring everything that I've been uh, working on for the last two years. I am open to being wrong. Um, I'm open for debate. Uh, I'm I'm not coming with um, with an attitude just an open mind um perhaps I'm a bit biased because I really do believe this is a big scam but I'm still open minded about it all and I am willing to sit at the table so that's what I would say to the people who are listening to this cuz I hear that too it's like no uh, there's a consensus in the scientific community that you know everything is is fine and that these are safe and effective and it's like oh yeah who are these who, who are these scientific community members? I want to meet them, all of them. And I mean that. Is it Shima Bakuro? Is it John Sue? Is it who is it? Bring them. Let's meet. That's what I would say. And so yeah, there's there's a bunch of reasons. Um
0: Do you have many people in, in your personal life that you talk to that are pretty pro-vaccine? Like that are that are pushing maybe the other side do you like do you get in those debates with individuals would you say regularly or no
2: no because i avoid them um i i was doing that in the very beginning um had a lot of fallouts and it took a huge toll on me and i just um i'm old enough to know by now like uh which you know it's it's wise to pick your battles well and um uh, not lose all your energy in battles that you probably can't win. So it's, it's not, it's not defeat to walk away. Um, So I, I, I just walk away from, from that, like, and and I don't participate in it because, um, and I don't judge anyone either. It's like, you're, you're in this phase um, and you, you're in, you know, in this belief system right now. And yes, I think it's a bit culty, but that's where you are and you'll move out of that or you won't. And you'll do it when you're ready. So, um, but there—that's like that's a minority of people. The majority of people are in this like middle ground, like the the myocardium of the (laughs) of the world. That's a nice analogy. Um, (laughs) And they are kind of like, well, I I know there's something going on here, and I didn't want to get the shot, but I got it anyway because I wanted to travel like they don't believe that they took this and it saved their lives. You know what I mean? So they're they're ready, more so ready to um to go into a uh, a serious conversation about whether or not these things are actually safe and efficacious and they're willing to listen to someone talk like about the the or to explain the data that shows that actually no. Um, these safety studies that the pharmaceutical companies did themselves as part of their clinical trials do not show safety. They actually show harm can ensue. You know, so um, yeah, I I know I, there there's none of that because uh, I stay away from it. Um, I'm not saying I'm not willing to, like I just said. I mean, bring the bring the top guns to the table, man, and I'll, I'll put my Dukes up and I'll defend my, my position. Um, and maybe I will have to hammer, you know, a little bit harder, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to try and convince, uh, you know, everybody.
0: All right. So <clears throat> what about to summarize, uh, what you've studied? Cause it's been, I guess almost three years that you've been looking into this and, uh, And understanding the kind of science behind both these vaccines and COVID itself. Could you summarize what you believe you've discovered about them? Like what is what is what is the like the the top line? This is what I know to be true about these vaccines and about this disease? Um good question.
2: Um well, SARS. Hmm. yeah what can i say that won't get me like into uh controversy land (laughs) Um, we don't
1: don't mind
0: controversy (laughs) no we don't mind controversy land but uh, i just want to know what do you what do you feel like you know about this virus and this
2: yeah i know and that's i'm trying to phrase it properly so i don't freak everyone out um I think that the SARS-2 virus was constructed. Uh, I think that the spike protein itself um, is, is a very bad thing for human physiology. It appears as though it uh, probably has amyloidogenic peptides. It appears as though um, it, it has molecular mimicry aspects to it, which means it has certain sites that can um induce an immune response, an autoimmune response in the person against really important proteins. Um, it appears uh as though I, I mean it's it's not a good thing. It's even if you don't want to get into the the nitty-gritty, it's a foreign protein that your body's being force fed to manufacture on mass. So How how good can that story go? It's it's driving inflammatory responses off off the charts wherever it lands, wherever it it embeds in in the lining of blood vessels. I mean, come on, that's not a good story. So SARS is um, I think it was uh, crafted and I don't know why I'm not saying that it was uh, crafted to do harm, but it certainly is doing harm. Um, we pretty much know that now because of the insertion of these, uh, specific peptides like the furin cleavage site. Um, COVID is interesting. This is like the disease manifestation part, and this is going to, this, this is going to depend on the individual, their immunological age and state. Uh, it's going to depend on how they handle it. Like if you, um, if you take, you know, treatment, if you, um, Anyway, we, we can get into that too. And um, and the injections, did you ask me about that too?
0: Yeah, what remember. do we know about them? Like, I'm just, I'm interested yeah. in like, what is known?
2: We know pretty much that the lipid nanoparticles are toxic because this is well-established in the literature. Uh, I absolutely do not buy their story that they got around the problem of the toxicity of the lipid nanoparticles, because I think that's exactly what's manifesting right now in many cases. I think that the spike protein is dangerous. Um, The thing about it is we don't know if people are actually getting injected with full-length spike template. Uh, This is, I think, why we're seeing a lot of variability in adverse event occurrence, because if the product wasn't manufactured, uh, delivered, or administered properly, or stored properly, you might get a product that is um, doesn't have full length spike template at all. So you might not, uh, uh, you know, fares as badly as someone who gets full length spike. Or it could be that the smaller fragments, <laughs> truncated versions, are actually more detrimental. We don't know that yet. Um, so these are the things that we know. Um, we also know, and this is really important, it's probably the most important thing of all. Um, whether you you want to believe what I just said or not, this whole thing has been shrouded in lies and 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 cloaks and um a lack of transparency and censorship. And there has to be. Somebody has to answer the the question, why? Because here, here's a good example. Mandates. That whole thing was the biggest tragedy in the entire history of humanity, mandating an experimental product. And here's why. If these things were actually safe and effective, you wouldn't need to mandate them because they would be safe. And then you wouldn't have any hesitancy because nothing would be going wrong and everyone would get it. If they were not safe and effective, then you can't mandate them because they're not safe. So either way, mandates were were off the table and somebody needs to explain this. Somebody needs to explain why there's even this issue of vaccine hesitancy. Why are they so desperate to get, for the first time in history, every single human being injected with these products? Why? Nobody's answered this simple question because it doesn't make sense immunologically. It's very bad immunologically in terms of herd immunity. It's very bad uh, virologically to to, to inject in the middle of a pandemic because you create uh, different versions of this this virus that actually could end up being more virulent. Not likely, but it could happen. Um, It just doesn't make sense. It's like you. if you have a problem, if you have a pathogen, you identify the vulnerable uh, pools of people and, and you put all of your energy into protect, protecting them. That's what we've always done. Um, I went on another tangent, but I mean, there there's all these really simple, basic questions that like seriously need to be answered. And the fact that they haven't been is probably... You know, the biggest thing of all, it's it's the thing that we know the most that's not refutable. These these questions haven't been answered. Mm. That's what yeah. we know.
1: So what about for the average person? Like what what is the best thing to do going forward? Vaccinated, unvaccinated, let's leave that to the side. Um, we're not through whatever is going on right now what advice would you give to people going forward through whatever happens next?
2: Um, Talk. Uh, Stay local. Um, Forge um, good relationships with your neighbors. I know it's hard with all this, you know, cellular phone technology, turning everyone into a zombie, but um that's a part of it like detach from the the digital world and reattach to the biological uh it's imperative that we hang on to our humanity um really um not being i'm being very serious right now because i think we're being i think humanity is under attack um i think uh it's very important to just be as human as possible i don't know how else to say it um love uh, you know, hug, um, express yourself in your creative way that you you know how um, you know, protect your 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 being with everything you have because it's all you have. Uh, you might think that it's a good idea to get injected with an experimental product, which basically is Russian roulette uh, to keep your job, but what if you end up in a wheelchair? And I'm saying that specifically because a lot of people I actually know have, uh, even people who are participating in the clinical trials themselves, who are now being completely ignored. Um, take care of this. You know, your, your, your inalienable rights are like protect you. Nobody nobody can tell you what to do with your body. Um, and I'm not saying that in a woke way. It's just a fact. It's, it's what you have. It's your temple. Uh, You know what's best, by the way. And if you're a parent, you know what's best for your kids. And tell everyone trying to do things to your kids, hands off. Um, That would be my advice (laughs) on kids. But stay local, um, forge local, uh, you know, make local communities if you don't have one. Uh, I think um, using cash is a fantastic idea. Keep that alive. I think markets are an amazing idea because they promote farming, local farming. Uh they promote gather, gathering. Um basically we all just have to live like the Amish. That that's what I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they had it right all along. <laughs>
2: they did. They did. Well
1: do- yeah. Dr. Rose, unfortunately, <laughs> we're out of time for today, but I want to thank you for all of the hard work that you are doing um to try to to try to um disseminate some of this information and and get it out in a way that um, silly people like me can understand it because uh, I'm not a scientist or a doctor. And uh, yeah, just I want to thank you for your time and thank you for being here and um, thank you for everything that you do. We we really appreciate who you are.
0: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at That's the Cad Story. That's the C A D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.